Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Welcome, future minority doctors, to another episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, I have a special guest. Her name is Rose Diaz. Let me introduce her. She attended medical school at UC Davis and recently completed her residency training in emergency medicine at the University of Michigan. She is currently completing a fellowship in social emergency medicine at UCLA. She started her professional life as a kindergarten teacher where she taught young children for over 10 years. Driven by a desire to help underserved communities, Rose eventually transitioned to medicine to fulfill her lifelong dream of becoming a physician, with the goal of serving as a community health advocate for vulnerable populations. Her research interests include reducing health disparities in the emergency department, improving the recruitment and retention of underrepresented minorities in medicine, and strengthening ties between providers and their surrounding communities. Rose is a mother of three adult children with a passion for cooking and distance running. She is thrilled to be returning to her native Los Angeles, which she just did, as the ideal fellow at UCLA, where she will earn her master's in public health at the Fielding School of Public Health and work as an attending physician at UCLA Olive View and Harbor Hospitals. Welcome so much, Rose. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for thinking of me and having me here. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so let's dive into your story a little bit. I'm sure our listeners are excited to hear a little bit about your background and your story of becoming a physician. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, first of all, exactly what type of physician you currently are. I am an emergency medicine doctor. I did my training at uh, UC Davis Medical School, and I really loved the emergency department when I rotated there and I felt a calling to be there. It's kind of interesting because I actually started off as a teacher. I was a teacher for 10 years, and uh, but had always wanted to become a doctor. And so after I decided to make the move to medicine, I needed some type of medical training because I was in my 30s by that time and had the idea of becoming a doctor, but had never worked in an, a doctor's office or in the medical field. So I became an EMT, so a first responder when you call 911. And sometimes EMTs work in the field and do house calls, and sometimes EMTs work in a hospital. And I landed up working at a hospital in East LA, White Memorial, fell in love with emergency medicine there and got some clinical experience. So after medical school, I still love the emergency department. And so I did my residency in emergency medicine, and now I'll be working as one of the doctors in the emergency department at UCLA. Wonderful. So since you just finished your residency training, I'm sure some of our listeners are interested to know what is residency training like? And of course, specifically in your case, in emergency medicine, what were those? Is it three years or four years like? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, emergency medicine has two different types of programs, about half or three years and about half or four years. And some of them are starting to transition more to the four-year program. So the three-year programs are usually more in the community. And that means that it's the community emergency department that you would go to if you have chest pain or abdominal pain. 
Some of the four-year programs will add an additional year, so you're still working in the community or sometimes at a major university like UCLA or University of Michigan where I went. And that extra year is used to help add in some time for research, for teaching, and for learning how to supervise other residents. And so it's, it's really great. And for me, research used to mean sitting in a lab and filling pipettes and that type of research. Uh-huh. But I found that medicine is great because there's a lot of room for research in areas that I'm passionate about, which includes ending health disparities and seeing social injustice within medicine and defining what those injustices are and working on ways to end them. And so research doesn't have to be in a lab. There's also a lot of research that's needed with uh, social justice and health inequities. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So to clarify, did you do that four-year program with that extra research? I did do the four-year program. Just thinking about what residency is like, everybody hears that residency is a trying time because there's a lot of demands and you do work a lot of hours. It is about 18 to 20 shifts a month and they're long shifts. But the great part about residency is that it is your time set apart for learning. So questions are expected. There's always an attending there who's finished their training, who's there to answer questions. You can come to a roadblock where all of a sudden you don't know what to do. And in residency, it's a safe space to reach out and say, what do I do next? And there's someone there to help you, to assist you. And, and so it's nice, protected time for your learning, even though the hours are very long. Uh-huh. Yeah. Are you a native Californian? Yes. Born and raised in Los Angeles. Yeah. And because of my atypical story, uh, when I applied to medical school, I did all of my prerequisites at a local community college and I hadn't been in medicine. So my application didn't look like typical applications. So I applied very broadly. I had hoped to stay in Los Angeles, but I applied all over the country and I got exactly one interview <laughs> at, uh-huh. uh, at UC Davis and I got admitted to one medical school. So one was all, all I needed. And I landed up going to Northern California for medical school. Well, one acceptance is all you need to become a doctor. Exactly. <laughs> so that's great. And yeah. then you landed in Michigan away from home for residency. How was that experience of moving away from home to a part of the country you probably hadn't spent much time in before? Right. I had never left California. And so my uh, someone at UC Davis who directed the emergency medicine clerkship had gone to University of Michigan for residency. And he loved it and he encouraged me to apply there. And so I applied and visited on interview day and fell in love with the program. The city Ann Arbor is a small college town that's very charming. So fell in love with the city uh-huh. and was excited about just you know pushing my horizons back and seeing something new that I had never seen, experiencing new things. It was challenging to leave California because I also left my family and friends as a support system. And residency can be tough in terms of the long hours, but it's also tough because you're really growing all the time. And it's a time where it would be nice to be around family and friends. So I found it challenging, but the, uh, the training was really good. So I also found it very rewarding to leave home. It was a brave thing to do, I think. Yeah. But it made it very sweet to come back. Uh, it's been really nice. I've been back in LA a few weeks now to start fellowship. 
Uh-huh. And it's been nice to be back around family and friends. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your fellowship program. What is it that moved you to do additional training in addition to residency? And what is it that you're accomplishing during this particular fellowship you're in? So I know some of the terms are confusing, so I could just explain. So after medical school, I did this four-year residency program. And in emergency medicine, there are two different paths you can go. You can go a community path where you'll be the attending physician at a local community hospital. You'll see most of the patients yourself, and you probably work about um, 12 to 14 shifts a month. Now, that's the community path. The other path is an academic path where you are working in medical education with residents. And so you're teaching and you're one of the attending physicians that is helping teach the residents the field of emergency medicine. And so instead of seeing the patients yourself, the resident will see the patient first, and then you and the resident will discuss the plan, what diagnosis you think the patient has, and what tests and imaging that the patient may need in the emergency department, as opposed to what things they can do with their primary care doctor as an outpatient. And then you can see if the patient's sick enough if they need admission to the hospital. So there are these two different courses. And as I was in residency and I became more passionate about social justice, I saw that there was a real need to have the residency and even medical school experience be inclusive for students of color and minority students. And I felt like representation was really important. And it made me want to stay in the path of academic medicine where I'll be teaching residents and hopefully helping with retention and recruitment of minority residents in medicine. So that put me on an academic path. And uh, fellowship is really helpful because with a fellowship, you develop a subspecialty. So my specialty is emergency medicine. And what specifically will be my subspecialty is research in public health about how to improve the experience for patients in the emergency department And then also the education part, how to improve the educational experience for medical students and residents as well. So it's more training. And for me, the advantage is that I think it's going to really make me love my career and help protect against burnout because that's a big part of of medicine that can shorten your careers if you're feeling burnt out. And I think it's going to help extend my career in that way. Wonderful. And how long is your fellowship program? My fellowship program is two years. And at the same time, the program will pay for me to get my master's in public health. And then I'll be working instead of the usual 14 shifts a month, I'll be working eight shifts a month. Mm -hmm. So it's a reduced load so that I can make time for research and teaching and my master's. Wonderful. Well, great. I'm sure you will do many great things in that program. Let's backtrack a little back to your, you know, you mentioned that you took a non-traditional path into medicine. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, what your upbringing was like, and then your first career, which you mentioned was teaching. And also maybe something about, you mentioned you have three adult children. So tell us a little bit about what that was like going yeah. to medicine with, with a lot of kids already in tow. Yeah, that it definitely all ties in. So I grew up in Los Angeles. I am the youngest of five daughters, so all girls. Uh-huh. And my parents were very traditional very Catholic. And for them, for their five daughters, we didn't really talk a lot about college. We didn't talk about careers. A lot of what we talked about was being a wife, being a mother. And that was where my parents came from. And and that's the things that were important to them as I grew up. 
in grammar school, I did really well on some standardized testing. And it brought about this opportunity to go to a private school in a fancy area that was outside of my neighborhood. Uh, my friend and I ended up going to an all-girls Catholic school on a scholarship. So we were kind of like the imported students <laughs> that got brought in. And it really, it was full of challenges to feel like I was the poor brown student that was there at this fancy school. But it also brought about a lot of opportunities. And for the first time, I was talking about things like going to college, which was a new discussion for me. Thoughts about grades being important and the SAT and things that I really had never thought about or heard about. And I know that being in that environment really changed my future. And so uh, I went from high school, where I was, I would say, a mediocre student, to college. And I continued to be a mediocre student. It was I, I feel like I made it to college, but as far as having grades be something that was really important to me or to my family, it just wasn't, it, was on, it wasn't on the radar. It was good enough that I was in school. So during college, I worked at, at a work-study job, and I was a teacher's aide. And after I graduated, the same school where I was a teacher's aide offered me a job as a teacher. So it was an easy transition, and I kind of fell into teaching. And I had uh, my first child when I was 21. So I had children when I was 21, 23, and 25. So by the time I was 25, I had three children. And I still had thought about becoming a doctor. I loved the idea of seeing someone who was sick and being able to offer them a diagnosis and help. And science really interested me. And health really interested me. But I felt like with that, when I had three kids so young that that was something that was just a dream and it wasn't going to happen for me. So it's seemingly unrelated. I also had really battled with my weight. Uh, after my third child, I was over 250 pounds. I, I got on the scale one day and I was 250 pounds. And then I stopped weighing myself after that. But I know I gained weight. And so I really started to struggle with my own health, especially with diabetes running in my family and obesity running in my family. So I started Weight Watchers and I lost over 100 pounds. And I had grown up overweight. It was something that I thought I could never battle. And I tried to lose weight before. But this time, I really stuck to the diet. And I felt like a different person after I lost that weight. Not because of what I looked like, but just because it was something that I thought was impossible that I did. And it took me years. It took me three years to lose that much weight. And it was very, very slow. Sometimes it was two step forward, one step back. But after I lost the weight, I also started to run. And before I couldn't even really run down a street, let alone run a mile. And so I uh -huh. started to run slowly and, and for short periods of time. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I ran around the block. And then I ran to one whole song <laughs> and, and slowly I started to build up. And after I lost the weight, I started distance running and I ran a marathon, Wow! which was an awesome experience. Uh -huh. And to think of someone who was overweight, not athletic at all, running a marathon to me, I just felt like I could do anything. And that is what made me start to think, maybe I can become a doctor. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so I, at the time, was still teaching full time. And by now I'd been teaching um, about like eight or nine years and I toyed with the idea of doing the prerequisites because by this time, college was a long time ago and I had majored in Chicano studies and uh, psychology. So it was unrelated to 
science and medicine. I didn't have the chemistry and the biology. So I went back to East LA College, which is my local community college. And I took one class and uh, actually I didn't do so well. I didn't set apart time for studying. Family life got overwhelming and I felt like, oh, this, this is not something I could do. But it still stayed with me. And so the next semester, I tried again. It was Chem 101. I dropped it the first time. And then the second time, I put some things in place like study time, me leaving the house to go to the library to study, and tried again. And I landed up doing really well. And I found a chemistry professor who was very encouraging. And I think it's probably the first time that I had told someone why I was there and expressed to someone in the science field that I wanted to become a doctor. I don't know why. I just felt silly saying it. I I was so worried about Uh what are people going to think if I say that I want to become a doctor? Maybe I had a sense that some people would discourage me and I didn't want to hear that type of discouraging word when I was barely making this decision on my own. But I opened up to this professor and he told me, you got the stuff. And I don't know why. Uh When he told me, you got the stuff, I felt like that was it. Okay, I'm going to do this. And I just needed that little bit of encouragement. And I continued at uh, East LA College and finished most of my prerequisites there. Mm-hmm. I had an awesome experience. I found so much encouragement, so much support. And once people got on board with what I was trying to do, I got a lot of really good mentoring in the community college system. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so yeah. glad to hear that because certainly sometimes we hear the opposite story of people who discourage, but I'm so glad you, I mean, I'm sure you would have kept going anyway, but <laughs> having those mentors that encourage you along the way can make such a big difference. One of the most common questions we get is, can you balance education and career as a physician with a family life? Especially from a lot of women students, we get that question. So what's your perspective on that? You were balancing a full-time teaching career with going back to school to fulfill pre-med requirements with raising a family. What was that experience like for you? I think it can be done, but it is difficult. The way people think it'll be difficult, it really is. I think that my whole family went through medical school because the role that I used to have as mother changed, but not in a bad way, in just a different way. I think that Before I started with my prerequisites, I was able to bake homemade cupcakes and do things that when I started doing the prerequisites, I couldn't do as much. And so I had to find ways to still be there for my kids and create special moments and memories, but also set apart time for studying. For me, I would wake up in the middle of the night And when everybody was asleep and it was quiet for me to study, and I would wake up about 3.30 in the morning and study from 3.30 till 5.30 and then go back to sleep for a little bit of a cat nap and then wake up and get everyone ready for school and cook breakfast and make lunches and do all those things. And so part of it is to have like a real burning desire to do it and you'll find a way. And I think the, the other part is not trying to erase that it will have an effect on your family but not making it seem as if it'll be all negative. My kids, I think, did see me studying. They saw someone with a lot of determination and someone who set a really high goal for themselves and wasn't, wasn't afraid to talk about it. 
And those were really great things for them to see as well. And so it's not all negative. There's some positive with the negative. And so it's it's possible. And I don't think we have to say that your family won't notice. I think it's okay to say there will be a change in your family, but it's not all negative. It's also great to set a role model for your family to set goals and try to strive for something that other people may think is impossible. Uh huh. How old were your kids at the time that you started to go back to college? They were in grammar school when I first started with my prerequisites. And then I took the MCAT a few times. The MCAT's the test that you take to get into medical school. And for me, the first time I took it without taking a prep class, and I Uh-oh. thought I could study on my own. Yeah. <laughs> and I did not do well. And so I took uh, additional time to study. And through LMSA, which is the Latino Medical Student Association, I was able to get a scholarship that paid for me to do a prep class with Kaplan. And so I did that prep class and, and retook my MCAT a whole year later. So the years definitely added up. I didn't go prerequisite straight through, took my MCAT, and then went to med school. Sure. I had to take also some upper division biology classes at uh, Cal State Los Angeles, just because some of the science passages were hard for me to read. And so I, I've, I did a lot of building up to the point where I could submit a strong application. Uh-huh. And so they grew up with being in grammar school, and then my oldest got uh-huh. to high school. <laughs> and by the time I finished uh, medical school, they were mm-hmm. high school, college age. What's really great is that they landed up doing very well academically themselves. Uh-huh. And they all, all three of them have graduated from college. And the middle one, she worked so hard, she actually got into Yale. And oh, wow. so she, we would study together a lot too, just uh, sitting at uh-huh. the living room table and grinding so hard. So she got into Yale. And then my older daughter, who graduated from uh, a local college in, in Los Angeles, LMU, she uh, did her master's in public health and she got into Yale too. So uh-huh. she did wow. her master's at Yale as well. And my That's son, amazing. yeah, my son just graduated from college at LMU too. And, and so all three of them did really well academically. And I think seeing their mom work really hard, set a good example. And so it doesn't have to all be negative that you're away and redefining yeah. motherhood in, in a way. It can also be really positive as well. Definitely. That reminds me a lot, actually, of my own mother. She was, this, you know, she grew up very traditional Mexican culture and wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, even though she was really smart. And so she had five of us and stayed at home. And at a certain point, you know, my dad struggled to support the family economically with that many people. So she decided to go back to community college and then transfer to a four-year university, became a teacher. But I saw her go through that process when I was in late elementary through middle school. And I think that, you know, there were times when I was that age that I was a little resentful, I'll be honest, yes. you know, because yes. I would, you know, she would be late to pick me up after my, you know, after school sports, or she couldn't go to, you know, some of my school functions. And there were times when I felt that a little bit of resentment because it was like, oh, you know, my uh, friends have parents who can pick them up on time and go to their activities. <laughs> and my mom can't because she's so busy. But honestly, that's so minor in comparison to the benefit that I got from seeing my mom work hard, from seeing her, you know, put forth the effort. And 
I, I'm pretty sure that her example was what really drove me to then get a higher education and be so ambitious myself. I mean, not by itself, but I love that you mentioned that your kids, even though there were hard spots, I'm sure that they saw your example and you were such a big motivator for them and such a great example for them as well. Yeah, I love your mom's story. It does remind me of, of my own. And I and uh-huh. I think that we just, as people who ask the question about balancing work and family, I think it's so important to put it in perspective for yourself too, because the guilt can be really intense. You want to give your family everything and you were raised with the expectation that you'd be there for your family, number one. Mm-hmm. And so for me, sometimes I ask my question, Am I are my priorities wrong if I'm missing this event because I have a test the next day and I have to study. And so you are redefining this motherhood role and you have to keep the perspective that there are some things that you will have to miss, but there's a bigger picture of defining this role. And then you get to show, kind of break out of the boundaries of what a mom should do, what a woman should be. Uh And that's great for your daughters and your sons to see as well. I'm curious, you mentioned that your own parents, you know, come from a very traditional background where certainly there are beliefs about, you know, the roles of women and men. How did they view your pursuit of a medical career? Actually, my family was very nervous about me going to medical school. Sometimes when people hear my story, they, be, they say, oh, your family must be so proud. And I just nod. But uh-huh. actually, the truth <laughs> <laughs> is that there was a lot of concern that I wouldn't be able to be the mother that I was expected to be. Unfortunately, by that time, I was divorced. And so I was a single mother and my kids lived with me full time. And so there was an added pressure that I needed to be there all the time for my kids. There was concern from family and friends that I wouldn't be able to be there. One one of my sisters even told me, I told her, this is my dream. I always wanted to become a doctor. I really had to defend this decision. Sure. And she said, you know, as a mother, it's your job to support your children's dreams. It's not your turn to defend your own or to pursue your own dreams. And so that stayed with me a lot. And I had a lot of guilt about whether she was right and whether my turn had passed and the ship had sailed. And I was trying to put some of the effort that I had into myself instead of my kids. And I felt selfish, Mm -hmm. but that was one perspective. And there was other people who encouraged me. And so deep down inside, I felt a passion for helping the Latino community. I saw, especially when I started to work in the health field, that there was a lot of injustice in terms of language and access. There was sometimes misunderstandings about health in the community. And so I felt like this is my opportunity to be a liaison and really serve as a bridge between the two communities. And so I felt a calling to medicine. And so when I felt conversely the guilt of not fulfilling the mother role the way my parents and my family expected me to, then I would also remember, I I feel like this is the right thing to do. And I feel like this is my calling. And that made me keep going. That's great. When was it that you first got that little, you know, fire lit inside of you that maybe you wanted to be a doctor? You mentioned that you had maybe had it, you know, when you first went to college, but then you ended up having children and deferring that dream. But is that something that had risen inside of you since high school or earlier or later? 
It was earlier. I, when I was young, there is a show on TV called Little House in the Prairie. <laughs> it's an uh-huh. old, old show. And there was a doctor there in the small town that was set in like the turn of the century that everybody would come to and he would have all of the answers and be able to help people. And so I just uh-huh. thought, oh my gosh, that's what I want to be. I want to be someone who knows what's wrong. I always had the curiosity when people got sick, like, oh, I wonder what's wrong. And so right. I thought that's what I wanted to do. I also had a really good pediatrician growing up. And I always thought, oh, I wonder if I could do what she does. She was a really good uh-huh. role model growing up for me as well. But just saying that I wanted to be a doctor was something that I felt like I couldn't do. And that was such a big deal. No one in my family was in the health field at all. No nurses, no EMTs. and definitely no doctors. And so it just felt like something outside of my scope. And so it's something I thought about, but I never said. And I am glad you're doing a podcast like this because it's something we need to talk about. We need to encourage each other because it is something new and different. And and it's so important to listen and learn about the field of medicine so you can see if that's a good match for you because the field definitely needs uh, Latino practitioners and minority practitioners because representation matters so much. Throughout your own journey, as you decided that you did want to go back and pursue this career, how was the process of mentorship for you? Did you struggle to find mentors that looked like you? Or did you ever look at, you know, the physicians in your community or in your school or training program and get discouraged by the lack of representation? Definitely. It's, it's hard to find people who look and think or were raised like you in medicine. And so for me, when I went back to East LA College to do my prerequisites, I felt like I was immersed in my community. And that's why the encouragement meant so much because it was understandable, like what was going to happen if I became a doctor and I could come back to East LA and help the Latino community. Uh And when I was at uh, ELAC, East LA College, there was a mentoring group that came from a local medical school. uh, And it was their chapter of Latino Medical Student Association. So the LMSA came and they took us bowling and I went out with them and they were just like me. They brought their kids and there's all kinds of toddlers at the bowling alley and Uh there was music and people were speaking Spanglish. And it felt like (laughs) these people are just like me and they're in medical school. And that's probably one of the first times that I felt like I could see myself in medical school because I felt like they were just like me, Uh especially since they're surrounded with their families. Mm -hmm. And I think joining groups like LMSA helped as well, because I found people who were like-minded and also had um, similar backgrounds and were raised in similar ways. And for me, my, my big struggle was finding study time, but people have different struggles as well. Like for some people, they were still supporting their parents financially. And so they had to work more hours. I was able to work part-time and go through school, and they were still having to work full-time and find hours to study so that they could support their family. And so it, it was helpful to find other people who struggled in similar and in different ways, but still had that passion for medicine. And it really helps to be able to sit down with someone and study or have an accountability partner uh-huh. who knows how hard it is, but knows how important it is to go through it and get to the end. Definitely, definitely agree with the importance of study partners. 
I'm curious, you know, when you mentioned that you would get up at 3.30 in the morning and study till 5.30, I just thought, oh my gosh, that takes so much internal motivation <laughs> to be able to do that because you're exhausted from life, from family, and you're sacrificing sleep. What was it internally that really gave you that motivation, that drive to do that work? Because I think a lot of people do find themselves in a position where they want it, but you know, there's that question of like, are you really willing to put in the work and keep going and keep trying, even if it gets hard and even if sometimes you stumble? So what was it for you? For me, I think it's knowing myself academically. I have to study harder than I think other people before I really get a concept. And then once I get it, then a light bulb goes off and I get it. And so I, I need to put in time to think about something I also read slower than other people. And so I needed to be able to have time to go through a paragraph. Sometimes I have to read it twice. Uh And then once I know it, I can be an A student. But I mentioned before that I was a very mediocre high school and college student because I think I never studied hard enough to get past that threshold of understanding something. Mm -hmm. And so I also had the false start in community college where I wasn't, my first time I took Chem 101, I, I didn't do well. And so the second time when I started putting more hours in and then I understood the concepts, I became this A student and I was getting the highest grade in the class, which wasn't my history. I was, you know, mediocre C student. And so it felt rewarding as well to know that I hadn't really seen myself as a star student, but when I put in the work, I was a top student and it it was rewarding and that helped me get up in the middle of the night. I also knew that if I was not going to give it a full effort, I wasn't going to be able to complete my goal. I wasn't going to be able to get the high grades that are needed to come go into medical school because it, it may be a great story and it, and it, you may want to encourage someone who is non-traditional to go into medicine. But the truth is you have to also have the transcript and the grades for someone to read your application. Right. And so I knew that I had to really deliver uh, uh-huh. these strong grades. And having some success at doing that kind of fueled the next time for me to study hard. And also, I think knowing that you don't have to like something, and that's what marathon running, which I mentioned, kind of got me on this this road, really taught me. Because there's a certain point where you're running long distances where it's not fun mm-hmm. and you want to stop. Oh, yeah. But the training in, in distance running taught me to separate that voice in my head that told me to stop from a deeper voice that could tell me to go on. And so once you do that type of training, you start to realize that you don't need to live by the pleasure principle and not everything you do, you have to enjoy. Some things you just have to get done and whether you like it or don't like it is irrelevant. So when you start telling yourself, I don't want to, I'm too tired, this isn't fun, this is crazy. You just have to say, okay, I hear you voice, (laughs) but I'm not gonna listen to you. And, And you have to remind yourself of what the true goal is. Yeah, I love that. And I love your parallel to marathon running, because I think you're so right that so much of like pushing through a really difficult thing is it's in your head. Yes, it's physical too. But so much of it has to do with just what your mind is telling you and what messages you're choosing to listen to and choosing to reinforce for yourself. I think that's so true. So jumping ahead a little bit um, from, you know, your uh, pre-med days to medical school, a lot of students experience a leap in the rigorousness of education Mm -hmm. from your college to medical school. 
What was that transition like for you? And just overall, what was your medical school experience like? It was a big transition because by the time you start to do well in all of your prerequisites, you're, you know, the the strongest student in the class, you're getting the highest grade on the test. And then you come to medical school and it's very humbling because people there are quick learners and they are incredibly intelligent. And so you start to get that type of imposter syndrome, which we talk about a lot. Uh And you start to think, you know, am I here just because of a minority quotient? Or is it because, you know, that why, why did I get admitted? And so you start to doubt yourself. And I think that can be really dangerous. And you're a danger to yourself when you start to notice how smart other people are and you forget, I'm smart too. I got, I got here. And so what helped me was finding a group of people who would study with me. We would meet after class and study. And they were people who also sometimes struggled. And we talked a lot about being in medical school and how hard it was. It was a lot of people of color, so uh, Latin, Black students um, who were in this group and we played music and laughed and we had a lot of really good times. And then we had a lot of serious get to business times as well. There are study rooms. Even though it is difficult, you will find your people in medical school. It may take some time, but you will find the people who study at your same rate and at your same intensity level who you can study with in the library. So we would have library rooms that are the private rooms with the soundproof doors that we would we would rent and we would go there, write things on the whiteboard, talk things out. Sometimes we'd play music softly to kind of help us during our study breaks. Uh-huh. So as hard as it was, there's a lot of really good memories of dancing to Beyonce for 10 minutes to dance it out and then studying really hard and studying late into the night. So there's good times as well in medical school. Yeah. And obviously you made it through. At what point during medical school, I assume, did you decide that emergency medicine was what you wanted to pursue? I had the idea that I wanted to be a pediatrician because I loved my own pediatrician. And then when I was a teacher, I was working with kids. And so a lot of the signs pointed to pediatrics. But when I went to do my pediatric clerkship in third year, that's where in third year you take several weeks to explore each of the major specialties. So I did pediatrics for um, eight weeks and I found that I was working a lot more with parents than I remembered in teaching because in teaching, the parents drop their students off and you're with them alone all day. But in pediatrics, you're working a lot with the parents and sometimes reassuring them. And it was just different from what I expected. And so I didn't love it the way I thought I was going to. But when I went to emergency medicine, I still was able to see children that came into the emergency department. But I also was able to see adults as well. And I really liked talking with adults, listening to their stories. I found that there's a lot of vulnerable populations who are adults, like people who are uh, experiencing homelessness, people who are battling substance abuse. And so there's a lot of vulnerable populations that I felt I could display a lot of compassion to that weren't in the pediatric population. Uh So that's what drew me to emergency medicine is the ability to work with adults and kids and the ability to work with those uh, vulnerable underserved populations. All right. Well, kind of wrapping up here, one question, if you, well, two questions, actually. Okay. Um, First, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, 
What would you tell younger Rose? I would definitely encourage younger Rose to speak out loud what my dreams were. Nobody knew I wanted to become a doctor because I was so afraid to say it. And then I really didn't know how to create the path to medicine for myself. And so it was very easily for my dream just to get buried. And then I became a young mom. And so it, it set, my, set myself back from not speaking out loud what I wanted to do. And so I would encourage people and I would encourage my younger self to start talking about wanting to become a doctor and actively pursue mentorships. Find people and ways that will help teach you about medicine because there's so much to know, even about how to get into medical school that other people are going to need to share with you or you're going to need to find out for yourself. And so I think talk about it out loud and it doesn't matter. Some people may discourage you, but it just needs, you just need one positive mentor to hear you talk about it and will take you under their wing and teach you what you need to know to get into medical school. I love that because, yeah, sometimes we're just too afraid to even have the dream and express it. Right. But if it's there, you know, listen to it. So Yes. What about just general advice, um, general advice to people who are maybe late in high school or in their college career, thinking about a career in medicine? What general advice would you have for them? I would say that you are definitely needed in medicine. Medicine is in dire need of people who represent the community. So we need more women, we need more people of color in medicine, and especially in some of the specialties like emergency medicine. And your stories in your family, diseases that your family has fought, or uh, difficulties that your family has had, those are what patients have too. And they want their doctors to understand them from an empathic way, because they've been through similar things. If you come from low-income communities, you come from these traditional families who have traditional medicine or maybe some families who don't understand the health system, that is a great background for you to help someone who has that same background who may not understand the health system because it's complicated. So just to know that you are needed and that the journey can be difficult, but if you search out and find mentors and people to go through it with you, then you will come out the other end with a lot of hard work. If you have a false start and your GPA is not what it needs to be to apply to medical school, it's not over. There's different ways to rebirth your application. So you may need to take more classes, get a higher MCAT score, but it's not as if you weren't perfect the first time and now it's over. Uh There are ways to redo it and get your strong application in when you're ready to give it your all. You're definitely needed in medicine. I think together we could change the face of medicine, change the culture of medicine, but we need people who have different perspectives, not the same old people in medicine to do it. I couldn't agree more with that. Thank you so much, Rose, or Dr. Mm -hmm. Diaz. You worked so hard for that title. So Dr. Diaz, thank you so much for your help and for talking with us today for your advice, for your inspirational story. I'm sure many of our listeners will appreciate it. And thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much.